Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. Thank you for coming along. The world is in tumult. Prices are high, inflation is everywhere. There is a war raging in Europe, the largest conflagration in Europe since the Second World War. Sanctions, severe sanctions have been brought to bear on Russia, the aggressor, by NATO, by the US, and by other friendly nations. But the price is that things we get from Russia or which are affected by Russian exports. We don't have to get them directly if they take product out of the world supply system. The result is the same, higher prices here and around the world. To look at these things, I have two exceptional men today, two gifted men, two people I think very highly of because of their acumen and their general comprehension of global situations. Joining me are Steve Odland, President and CEO of the Conference Board, one of the nation's premier business research organizations. And I must say that he is not purely an academic, although there's something academic about the Conference Board. He, in fact, has been the CEO of two major retail organizations, Office Depot and AutoZone. So he knows what it's like where the customer comes up with the money. And Clinton Vince, chair of the US energy practice of Denton's, the world's largest law firm. And of course, Linda Gasparello, the co-host of this program and its producer. Linda, welcome. Steve, how long can we expect the inflation to last? Yeah, it's a very good question, Llewellyn. You know, we were in a situation where we were trying to recover from the COVID-19 shutdowns of 2020. We shut the economy down virtually globally, and then we had to restart everything. It's been suffering through supply chain shortages, which had uh, begun to uh, stimulate inflation, uh, as we know, throughout 2021. It was thought by the Federal Reserve and other central banks that that would be transitory because these effects were thought to be driven by the temporary shutdown and you know, the associated uh, restarts of supply chains around the world. Uh, in fact, now that has been exacerbated by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine uh, is a primary source of uh, food exports to the world. And as we know in the region, uh, they produce a tremendous amount of energy and metals. Uh, and as nations have reacted to the Russian invasion and uh, put embargoed uh, goods from Russia, that has put a huge pinch on supplies, not only from Ukraine, but now from Russia on all of these basic commodities. This has really stimulated uh, an increase in the uh, inflation rates, uh, and it has slowed the global GDP growth. So the question is, what's going to happen in Ukraine? Because that, in turn, determines what's going to happen elsewhere. And also, what happens to the global reaction to China who has formed this relationship with uh, Russia that, uh, that is a supportive relationship? And do, do other countries around the world begin to boycott Chinese goods? All of this still is yet to play out. But if the status quo was to play out and it was only limited to, to Ukraine, you know, the feeling is that, uh, and, and if the central banks continue to 
do what they've said, which is to raise interest rates by 200 to 250 basis points around the world, then you could see inflation abate by 2024. If the situation expands from Ukraine, uh, as I've described, though, it could take quite a bit longer. And actually, uh, the situation could get a lot worse. The final thing I'll say is that it depends also on what happens to the growth. If the GDP levels in the developed world slow down, now we've taken uh, 50 basis points off of our forecast. We're saying that the global GDP growth rate will be three and a half percent in 22 and 3% in the US. But if that slows down beyond that, we will then enter something which is called stagflation, which we haven't seen since the late 70s and early 80s, which would uh, make this a very difficult situation. So that's uh, that's our view of things, Wallen. Thank you. A very comprehensive. Appreciate it. Clint, energy drives inflation and drives everything else. People see it at the cost of the pump, but they don't see it for the diesel that's bringing them goods. They don't see it for the diesel that's driving the tractors on the farms, etc. Um, is there anything we can do about the energy-induced inflation uh, as the world oil supply is suddenly very tight because of the cutoff of Russian exports to much of the world and possibly to get more severe the restrictions, that is? Well, and I think there's a lot that can be done. Um, but to support uh, Steve's really great comments a moment ago, I, I think you are going to see such dramatic change that it's going to be wrenching for a period of time. There, there are, uh, someone once said that war is an unfolding of miscalculations. We have certainly seen that, but I would add it's also an unfolding of unforeseen consequences. So to come to the point of your question, if you look at uh, uh, one of the huge unforeseen consequences in the last month is that uh, four weeks ago, Russia was one of the preeminent energy suppliers in the world. Uh, they were the third largest producer of oil, the um, second uh, largest producer of natural gas, and actually the largest exporter. Uh, and they exported large amounts of coal, uranium. Uh, within a month's time, um, Russia is losing its major export um, partner, which is Europe. They're responsible for very substantial portion of Europe's uh, energy. Uh, and around the world, there are not just governments, but many, many private companies, uh, transporters, shippers, vessels, insurers, People around the world are shunning uh, Russia right now. And so there's an immediate drop off of uh, probably one to two million barrels per day right now. When you layer on top of that, the um, uh, banning from the uh, Western banking system and banning from Western technology, there are going to be huge unforeseen consequences from that. and. Uh, you know, I, I talked to um, our global leadership just before getting on this call. We're in about 80 countries. And there, the, my takeaway from that call is that things are developing at lightning speed and that no one, even the really savvy clients that we have and members of our team, no one 
can fully predict what's going to happen over the next, even the next few weeks, let alone uh, the next uh, six to 12 months. But I think Steve's um, forecast sounds very realistic to what I've been hearing. Linda? Uh, Clint, uh, as Llewellyn mentioned in his introduction of you, uh, you are the co-chair of Denton's global energy sector. And for energy companies, is pulling out of Russia easier said than done? And I'm thinking specifically about ExxonMobil that has a Far East project in Russia. And as far as I can see, I, you know, I think that, that Vladimir Putin will uh, freeze or nationalize the assets. So what can these US energy companies, these big multinational companies, what can they do to avoid the Russian system? Um, what are they working on to avoid that? Uh, restructuring or, or something else? Because that would actually be a horror going forward. It's a great question, Linda. The, you know, a number of the majors have um, long-term contracts that are more problematical for them. They're immediately terminating their short-term relationships. There are some movements now, global movements that are going to impact this, like ESG, uh, environment, social governance movement, where private investors and corporations are going to impact the activities of uh, corporations. One, one thing that I believe you'll see is a huge realignment of where um, oil and gas is sold and how it's sold. So you'll see the United States become a, the leading exporter for natural gas. It's already moving in that to that position, but it will increase dramatically. You will see companies that have a short-term quandary as to whether to invest um, in more production or whether to wait and see what occurs with uh, you know, intermediate term oil and gas prices and other prices. You'll also see competitors emerge to Russia. For example, you will see um, companies or countries like Bahrain begin exporting more aluminum, uh, Egypt and Morocco exporting more fertilizer and so on, um, I think that um, uh, Qatar and Australia and the United States will fill in a lot. And then we'll have to see what happens with OPEC plus, who, who is willing to uh, uh, increase production. I know the governments are working on that, but there'll be a lot of um, pressure from private interests that we haven't fully seen yet. I, can I just um, amplify on that, Clint? Uh, you meant uh, when you said increased exports from Qatar and, and Australia, you were referring to natural gas, right? Yes. Yeah, but they have large reserves, both countries. And there also yes. is oil and gas in the Eastern Mediterranean has yet to be produced. Um, let me go back to Steve. Uh, in your <clears throat> prediction of sustained inflation, what can governments do, and particularly what can the U.S. government do to help the consumer, the fixed pricing, the fixed income consumer, or the low wage consumer, particularly affected? Yeah. Okay. So you know, there's the the supply side 
that is impacting inflation. And then there's the demand side. So let's start with the supply side. We've talked a little bit about energy and, you know, to the extent that we can, you know, encourage more production, uh, do so by, you know, speeding permits to drill on uh, federal lands, for example, and support the, the increased uh, production of oil and also the use of North American oil. You know, the Alberta uh, energy minister came out and said that, uh, that Alberta, you know, one province in Canada can make up the entire shortfall uh, to, to North America from, from Russia. So, you know, these kinds of, of actions, you know, that are, that are uh, you know, trade actions would, would help a lot. So work on the supply of energy. You also have the impact on food. And this is particularly concerning to me, you know, as uh, Ukraine accounts for 16% of the food exports, but the food exports from Ukraine go to Sub-Saharan Africa, the Middle East, uh, Bangladesh, um, and Thailand and Indonesia. So it, it, if, if this production, if this planting doesn't get into place in Ukraine very quickly, we are going to have some mass shortages, particularly in uh, very poor countries. So governments in other areas like Canada, the US and, and so forth can increase supply, take off the, uh, the incentive to have these fields lie fallow and, and plant uh, to increase supply of grain. And, you know, of course, you also have the impact of oil uh, on food because of packaging, you know, all plastics are derived from oil. So, which is a, a big portion of uh, packaged food or delivered food costs. So these are all complementary. So it's the supply side, do everything you can, remove regulations, remove the disincentives to plant and encourage supply um, you know, throughout the world. So that's the one thing government can do. The other piece is the federal banks, the federal reserve. You know, from a, from a an inflation standpoint, it particularly hits poor and fixed income households, as you said, because uh, you know they're on a fixed uh, amount coming in, and the cost of living is skyrocketing all over because of the shortages. And so, therefore, the Federal Reserve needs to act, and it needs to act probably far more aggressively than they have. They've talked about you know seven increases. Uh, they were a little timid here on the first uh, increase with uh, 25 basis points. Some in the Fed were arguing for 100 basis points on the first move. I suspect that they're going to, we're going to see a couple of 50 basis points moves. But if we can do that within, uh, without knocking off the growth rate, um, you know, then we can kind of uh, balance uh, the issue here. But then you have the wild card of will the Ukraine situation spill over into NATO? Will this uh, version into a, a full-fledged war? Will chemical weapons or, you know, God forbid, nuclear weapons be used, which would escalate this to, you know, quite a bit different levels, which then could put a damper on uh, global growth and, and create a recession. These are the kinds of unknowns, um, but, you know, just in, in a, you know, in a shorter term world, there are a lot of things that federal governments and uh, the central banks can do to ameliorate the issues. Steve, I don't think all our listeners and viewers are familiar with financial terminology. What is meant by basis points? And yeah. Knows, okay. And I actually know, but could you tell us, please? Sorry about that. So, 50 basis points would be a half a percentage point. So, it's uh, essentially the Fed moved a quarter of a percentage point. You know, and when we we had interest rates near the one percent, it's go went up by uh, 25 basis points or a quarter percent to one and a quarter percent. But we really we really need to see infl um, you know uh, interest rates closer to 
to three, three and a half percent, and eventually four percent, which is sort of the normalized uh, level here in order to control inflation. And we're trying to get inflation down to close to two percent. Uh, you know, we're not, you know, they're not fixated on the precise number, but we're, you know, sitting up here at seven, eight percent is not a good place to be. Just to compliment. Uh, Steve's really important comments. We've talked about the supply side. It's also, um, we might want to look at the demand side because uh, in the aftermath, for example, of the oil embargo, there was a surprising amount of reduction of demand just based on conservation as a result of increased prices. And also in the past 20 years, we've really improved on energy efficiency. I think uh, coming back to your earlier question and Linda's, something you will see is a big increase in investment in um, energy efficiency, in clean tech, in uh, non-fossil fuel producing uh, energy. And that will just, you see Europe and Germany already going in that direction. Then on the supply side, there'll be other developments probably like I don't think you're going to see the same um, acceleration uh, to deactivate nuclear. I think that will be prolonged now among countries like Germany and uh, Belgium and others. Um, and I think you will see tremendous uh, development of things like electric vehicles, even more than the mega trend that's already underway. You do bring up another issue, though, with electric vehicles, that some of the essential components of batteries, the, the, the heartbeat of the electric vehicle, come from, uh, from Russia. So we're going to see not just uh, uh, constraints in oil supply, but we may see constraints in the things which manufacture the alternatives to oil, um, which is interesting. Linda, you have a question. Right, for Steve. Um you spoke about uh, the fact that Russia and China are going to be moving closer. Um, they were moving closer anyway before the war, and certainly now as a result of the sanctions on, on Russia. China has also had sanctions on it for a very long time, which really haven't done very much to stop uh, the Chinese economy from moving along. But anyway, President Biden spoke in his State of the Union address about um, making things in America instead of relying on foreign supply chains. And the supply chain situation has certainly uh, increased uh, the inflationary pr pressures here in the United States. But are we seeing a new era of economic nationalism? And there's a sense of safety about making things in the United States. But isn't there also um, a dangerous aspect to that, considering that so much of American companies, multinationals, foreign revenue uh, or revenues, about 28% have come from, uh, from their foreign investments, and that's for the S&P. That's a lot. Uh, and if we, start, if we start looking inward, isn't that a dangerous trend? Yeah, you, you have to differentiate the investment that's been made, the, you know, the foreign direct investment that's been made for local production to service lo those local economies and the direct investment that's been made in order to produce and then ship it back around the world. So China has become the manufacturing site of the world and they've done it deliberately by subsidizing the labor. And so you've, you've had this huge labor arbitrage 
uh, you know, big gap, if you will, between labor in China and labor in the developed world. And so therefore, it's been cheaper to manufacture it in China with the labor that's there and the cost that's there, and then ship it all the way around the world because energy has been low. Now, as Clint has said, you know, energy costs have gone up, which has made up the cost, and you also see labor costs rising in China. So I, I think that you know, this, this notion of you know, nationalism, supply chain nationalism, it sounds like a little parochial, uh, you know, it would be bad, but at the same time, you have to have national security. So an example of that is uh, computer chips. You know, these chips are in everything. They're, they're in our dishwashers, our, our refrigerators, certainly uh, our automobiles. Everything that we have is, is now run by these chips. More than half of the world's supply of computer chips are made in Taiwan, and 90% of the advanced chips to run electronics, computers, and so forth are made in Taiwan. And part of this whole axis between Russia and China has been an acknowledgement by China that Russia has the right to go into Ukraine, and vice versa, an acknowledgement by Russia, a quid pro quo, that China has the right to take over Taiwan. These are very dangerous times. And if you think about it purely in economic terms, if China goes into Taiwan, they own the world supply. Russia owns the world supply or you know, a large portion of the supply, as Clint said, of these uh, rare earth minerals. So you, we've lost a lot of, you know, call it economic nationalism, but uh, you know, national security. And so I do think that we need to be thinking about the USMCA you know, the, the, uh, the, the NATO uh, follow on um, and, you know, begin to locate our supply chains more closely to home, not, not only for, it, it's not nationalism as, as much as it is economics, which have shifted and, and, and also, uh, you know, national security. So I think these things are important, but you have to remember, it's not easy and it's not short term. This takes years to happen. It's taken decades to get where we are today. It takes years. Just to build a plant, uh, you know, a a chip plant uh, to provide some of the supply costs somewhere between thirty and hundred billion dollars and multiple years to get that up and running. So this is not a quick solution, but we what we have some urgency. Can I ask you, Steve, when you were head of two specialized retailers, large retailers? Um, but, but with very specialized markets, what's the source of supply of concern to you? Did you say, oops, that's coming from China or, oh, I should watch this, it's coming from Japan? Yeah, no, I think, you know, look, I, I think that we've moved towards a more global supply chain. And as trade is liberalized and, you know, China joined WTO, it, this made a, a lot of sense. Commodities were coming from Russia and other places. Now that you see some of these actors creating this new axis and behaving in a way that's counter to WTO, but also world standards, right? Uh, Geneva Con Convention to, to mention one, it be, has become a different game. And so, you know, you can't just say, well, gee, let's, uh, let's just continue to globalize the supply chain without regard to where that is. And also the costs have shifted, as I've said before, because labor costs in China have gone up uh, tremendously. So I think that there needs to, there will be a natural shift Without this war in Ukraine, without any of the geopolitical tensions, there would have been a natural shift. But I think this uh, will require uh, speedier action on people's part. It, it, the food issue is really a, a concern to me, Llewellyn, as I mentioned before. It, it, you know, energy is one thing. Food is another here. I mean, it, if, it, this could have very short-term, very fast 
uh, effects on food pricing, but also food availability. And we could be facing famine in some well, of the world. I, I'm very sensitive to this myself. I'm a native born African and uh, the amount of grain imported from Ukraine into Africa is very substantial. Uh, we have tended in the US to think of ourselves as the grain basket of the world, but it wasn't quite so. Uh, Ukraine has very much been a, brain ba a grain basket for many countries, and I'm sensitive to it too. There isn't any quick fix either, is there? Well, you have to get, you have to get crops planted, and, and so you have to assume um, there, I've seen some assumptions that say that you, we're only going to get, uh, well, first of all, Ukraine has put uh, an embargo on any food exports in order to try to preserve the food for their own country. That creates an immediate shortage around the world. Grain stocks are at an historical low because of drought over the last two years. So there needs to be some very significant planting in order to drive incremental supply as soon as possible. Now, some of the things like, for instance, uh, Ukraine provides half of the world's sunflower oil. Okay, well, that doesn't sound like that big of a deal. How many things have sunflower? You would be surprised at how many foods have sunflower oil. And so therefore the substitute is palm oil. Well, palm oil is problematic as well, you know, with deforestation and, and supplies out of Southeast Asia. So, you know, it's not completely fungible and uh, and, and this creates some, you know, some, some hardship, particularly for these poor countries. Clint, how are electric utilities affected? We know that in Europe and other parts of the world, the high price of natural gas has pushed up the price of electricity enormously. Um, how is it affecting the price here? And going forward, what is going to happen to the electrification of the economy if we have shortages in things like nickel and palladium, et cetera? I think the utility industry is right now beginning to see supply chain issues. Uh, Steve's point about the suddenness of change with uh, food and also the suddenness of change with oil exports, gas exports, um, and uranium and other materials. I believe the other big threat for utilities right now is cyber, which we didn't talk about, but that too, I mean, utilities right now are looking at climate, cyber, and now supply chain issues as three of their biggest issues. And some of these are developing really, really fast. We had President Biden yesterday warn about cyber attacks on, uh, to expect the possibility of cyber attacks on uh, US infrastructure. Um, so that is a big, issue as well. But I think the, the more that utilities move toward clean energy and energy efficiency and demand side and things like distributed energy resources, which include um, battery storage, uh, electric vehicles, there will be challenges on supply chain, but we will find other suppliers, other competitors to Russia for many of these materials or most of the materials. We're out of time. Thank you both very much for coming along. I'm going to go for a walk very shortly. I hope you do likewise. That does not require the government. Uh, all the best. Cheers. White House Chronicle is available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen. We are there.